people annoying you? Do you trust what you're hearing in your head? Is that voice yours? How are you feeling? Got a little extra something riding along, piggybacking on you? What's going on inside? Or are you noticing others around you are temperamental, not quite the same? They may look the same, but they're a little bit edgy. Are people a little bit edgy? Something's not right. Something's a little off. Here we are in the season of Samhain, Halloween, All Hallows Eve. When the veil is thin, and the veil's extra thin this year, as we record this in October of 2024, there's a lot of stuff going on in pop culture right now that is showing us possessions. There's new reboots of old, scary tales. There's new versions out. There are new ideas as to what possession is. And I'm not sure that we really understand what is, is possession. It's not like nine-tenths of the law or something like that. Squatter's rights. How does that apply to a human? Is everything around us human? What is going on? There's all kinds of movies in the mix. We got The Exorcist Believer. The First Omen, a reboot. The Devil's Conspiracy. Talk to me when evil lurks. The host, the skeleton key, first possession, the black demon. Again, that's from this year. Demon seed, the nun too coming out. We had a little snapshot there in the beginning of Rosemary from Rosemary's Baby, the great Polanski film. Where she realizes it ain't no dream. It's really, ha it's really happening. We have the connection with Charles Manson and his possessed family. You know, they killed a Rosemary in there. He is the director of Rosemary's Baby. And it was his baby that was sacrificed that was inside the beautiful Sharon Tate. Everyone wanted to say that Charlie boy 
was in their heads because Charlie Boy didn't lift a finger. What made all those people kill? Cold blood. What makes people snap and go on a killing spree or do strange things? What's the fuller idea of possession? We're looking at zombies? I mean, it seems like we could put them into the fold. What about ghouls? Ghouls were formerly human. Then they sink down to eating the flesh of the dead. Cannibals. But we know that cannibalism is all the fashion. We've done shows talking about that. Here and there, drip drop. Drugs. Does one get possessed by drugs? Fentanyl. What about alcohol? Spirits in you, child. Spirits possessing you. They call alcohol spirits. Isn't that funny? What about our W band? And the biosensors in us. What about technology? Seems like a lot of things could fall under the idea of possession. The devil may devil, the devil may do it. Do it. That used to be something people said. Is selling your soul at the crossroads? Is that a form of possession? Is a contract a form of possession? What about those charismatic Christians when the Holy Spirit comes over them and they're feeling it, they're possessed by it? I even found a couple very interesting quotes about Muhammad looking into his life and some demonic possession in there. No, I don't know, and I don't mean any disrespect. I was just looking at the source and found that information. They say that sickness is a form of possession. And now, with all these receipts about how we're being electronically controlled, shouldn't we widen this gate? Look up a little bit deeper. There's a lot going on with this idea. And I think it's more than just demons and angels. I think it's more than what we've been told. But isn't everything, isn't everything we've been told some sort of a misdirect or a lie? Have we been gaslit? When one is traumatized, they say walk-ins come in. What's that? What about the black-eyed children? You know, the ones that show up in the night wanting to come in. The formerly dead that rise does this fit a vampire's description? 
Amy D and I are here to break this down. We are going to try and stay in our lane because it was apparent that so much is going on with this idea. But the one thing that brought it to prima donnas of the gutter was it's in the fashion industry. It's on the runways. It's at the exposés. We're going to talk about Doja Cat, okay? Doja is serving it. And she is giving no fucks. It's everywhere. It's in music. I guess at this point, who's human? Isn't that the question? But with that, I'm going to bring on my lovely co-host, Miss Amy D. Amy D, girl, how are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm actually incredibly great, Nish. This has been a really, really fun episode to prepare for. And there's just so many angles to hit it from. And I'm hoping that we make sense. I'm hoping this isn't like the voice of uh, God and dogma, where it's just so much information flooding that it's too loud. It's too much for people to hear. But um, I'm pretty, pretty confident in our ability to transmit all of the vast ideas that we've both been contemplating for the last, I don't know, month or so at this point. <laughs> it's been a little bit, hasn't it? Yes. Well, we've both been possessed by all kinds of other things. I mean, this is that whole idea of possession. One can be possessed by the muse. And this becomes another strain in this multi-layered vector that is all possession bad. I mean, as an artist, when the muse comes upon me, girl, you know, I I go with it. I let it happen. Yeah, and there's the possession of love. You can be kind of beside yourself in love with someone. There's all sorts of ways that one can be sort of removed from themselves and having an ecstatic experience. And there's also a bunch of ways, I suppose, someone could be removed from themselves and having a negative experience or a negative sort of manifestation into the 3D. Like everything else we do, the more you dig into it, the more nuance you see and the less black and white everything is. It's all got this overlap and it becomes challenging to stay myopic because it feels like when we do go that angle, we take things out of context, but at the same time, we do need to put the looking glass on some things. I want to start with looking at some of the ideas of what we just naturally think of as possession before we get into some of the particulars here. So when we first decided to do this, before we started looking into the deeper ideas and immersing ourselves in this, you know, what was your idea when you hear possessed? What did you think? At first, when you first broached the subject, I was interested because I knew that we had Halloween coming up, but I didn't really latch on because it really seemed a little bit, um, it really, in, at first glance for me, it was like, oh, not in my wheelhouse. But then 
as I let it layer on me and I let it marinate, I really let myself go, say, get possessed with this idea and go into all the different corners and avenues that I possibly could. And I found it everywhere. And I found it, honestly, I find it to be one of the most interesting things because you can discuss it from a mental health, you can discuss it from a religious, you can discuss it from a spiritual, non-religious. And there's also just like behavioral things. And I would say um, a societal sort of matrixy um, paradigm that can be kind of those, all those paradigms can be overlaid and we can sort of understand possession a little better. And now I feel like to not have done this episode would be a disservice to myself and to others. And before we even recorded, I was letting friends know that I knew today going into this with you, as always, when we record, my mind would like meet with yours and expand. And I knew I would have some sort of, yeah, expansion and consciousness about this and exactly what I thought would happen, <laughs> happen which is I have a totally, not just one new perspective on possession, but like five new perspectives on possession. And I really understand it. And I see how it's employed artistically. I see how it's used to generate energy around a project. Uh, and I see how it's actually something that uh, historically and accurately describes a lot of things that people encounter. And we're just, you know, trying to make sense of what we see with the vocabulary we have to make sense of it with. And sometimes that's different depending on our backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all, like everyone that is dealing with language, have uh, a different relationship to words and the context in which they are laid down in our lives through pop culture, through conversations, through iterations of self as we evolve and our understanding of language changes through slang and all that. It's just bizarre. When I first thought of possession, my view is pretty wide. Immediately for me, the thing is demonic possession, you know, the Catholic Church in particular. And of course, I think of the exorcist, which we won't dive into. But I knew that there was much more to look at here because we do understand that there is so much more. I didn't allow myself to dig too deeply outside of the idea of a religious context. And it was interesting when I started to pull into it that, well, you know, like you said earlier, I've been possessed by the spirit of love and the muse and hunger, you know, all these things. And then I started to wonder, like, how do parasites play into this? And, you know, start going all kinds of different directions. But with that, you know, we might as well start with the actual definition of it. So it's the act of having or taking into control, control or occupancy of property without regard to ownership, ownership, control of the ball or puck. An example, an instance of having such control as in football, something owned, occupied or controlled property, domination by something such as an evil spirit, a passion or an idea, a psychological state in which an individual's normal personality is replaced by another. And then it also has in here self-possession, which, you know, we forget about that. And 
possessional and possessionless. And then that leads us over to an article that our Noelle Jeanette, who does all our data mining for us, that makes the show go around. I put in our data dump from Spiritual Science Research Foundation, Levels and Signs of Demonic Possession. And I think this will lead us into uh, one of the movies that you deep dive for us. So, Levels and Signs of Demonic Possession, Introduction to the Levels of Demonic Possession. I'll read this first bit here. Demonic possession is a complex issue where nothing is what it seems to the gross eye. In our seven years of intense study of the subject, SSRF has come across various types of demonic possession that indicate a diverse range of symptoms and impact on the individuals who are possessed. There is no easy way to explain the levels of possession as there are a number of ways and nuances in looking at any type of possession. In this article, we will try our best to share with you these perspectives on demonic possession and their various nuance. And so they have these levels here. So two, levels of demonic possession based on who can perceive the manifestation. There's mild demonic possession. And so a note on that is here, even a layperson by the means of his or her intellect and basic understanding of demonic possession can understand from observing an individual's abnormal behavior that something is amiss with the possessed person. And so it goes on with that. A psychiatrist looking at the incident would generally classify it as a psychosis or another psychiatric disorder. And we're going to get deeper into that later. Medium demonic possession. Here one could require a higher level of sixth sense or extrasensory perception to be able to discern whether the person is possessed. And it goes on there. Number three, levels of demonic possession based on the extent of control achieved over the manifestation by speaking to the manifest person. From this viewpoint, demonic possession is categorized based on the extent that a person of average spiritual level can speak to a person where the ghosts, demons, devils, negative energies, etc. has manifested and is able to calm him down. So that's still in mild possession. And then here's four, level of demonic possession based on the spiritual level of the spiritual healer required to remove the ghost. Here the level or de degree of demonic possession is based on the minimal spiritual level required of a spiritual healer in order to cure a possessed person. So a mild possession would be when a spiritual healer of 50% spiritual level can cure the possessed person and it goes on and then five level of demonic possession based on the amount of control by the possessing ghost here the level of possession is dependent upon how much control the ghost demons devils negative energies has acquired over the mind and intellect of the possessed person in short how much 
as the ghost merged with the person's consciousness. And so then at level six is based on spiritual strength of the possessed ghost. Here, the level of possession is determined based on the strength of the possessed ghost demons, etc. It goes on. Now, the Vatican also mentions there is a full integration. And that's when you're beyond the point of help. That's when it's gone too far. And so I think this is a really great time to look at one of these movies I'm highly anticipating watching that sparked wanting to do this show. The Exorcist Believer is moving forward from the original Exorcist. So it's standing on the shoulders of that story. And in fact, we will have a reoccurring character in there. And so I know, Amy D., you dove into The Exorcist and got a whole bunch of the backstory. What did you find? Well, I found so many interesting little tidbits about the making of The Exorcist. Simply because um, it's a movie that was made before we had any CGI. And so there were a lot of stunts and a lot of um, effects that were done using traditional craftsmanship versus uh, computer-generated images. And so there was a lot of interesting, scary things that kind of predate The Exorcist. Firstly, it was written by a man who was a, a comic writer, the book, and the book did really well. And he uh, doesn't really think of it as a horror movie. And a lot of people that watched it, like Ray Bradbury describes The Exorcist as a beautiful love story in which a priest gives his life to save a little girl he's never even met. And then later on, they refer to it as not a horror movie, but a supernatural detective uh, movie and a story about the mystery of faith. And I thought these were all interesting perspectives on a movie that was basically sold to the American public as a story of possession and a story of demonic possession and satanic uh, imagery to go along with it. And I really do think that uh, the that the way they sold this film was to use the satanic panic. And that's not to diminish the Satanism that's happening at the time. In fact, the satanic panic, I don't I don't uh, even think that's a bad thing. There were a lot of things going on where people were talking overtly about Satan. So obviously people hear that, that know what that means, are going to infer a lot of, you know, energy and a lot of uh, meaning into whatever they think that's going to be. So, but it comes to find out that there were people uh, fainting in the movie screenings and basically like throwing up and I guess they were handing out barf bags because it, the publicity was such that it was preparing people to just be grossed out. And I thought, well, what a great way to sort of possess the audience, you know, uh, to give them a sort of way that uh, a preconceived notion of what to receive it as. And then I guess Ellen Burstyn, when she was at her premiere, she, a woman fainted and she came to find out that people were not fainting because of the religious imagery or the affront to God or anything like that. They were freaked out by a, a medical scene in which they take um, Linda Blair and they insert a, a needle into her neck because they're they're attempting to find out what's wrong with her. What's because they're not in possession yet. That's like the last house on the left tile. OK, so basically what I'm trying to get at is that there was sort of an impression that was given to the audience to receive this. 
And there was a way it was received, which required or the audience responded in mass by buying Bibles. So I'm wondering if the audience is scared by the material and what happens as a result of that is actually a religious awakening. Then is this a movie that's advertising the devil or is this a movie that's advertising the Hegelian dialectic to the devil, which would be Christianity? And I just find it very interesting how um, one so seamlessly blends into the other when it comes to the public consciousness. And this movie is in the theaters now for everyone to see, so I can't wait to see it. That's what dovetails in on this, is the synopsis of this is, when his daughter Angela and her friend Catherine show signs of demonic possession, it unleashes a chain of events that force single father Victor Fielding to confront the nadir of evil. Terrified and desperate, he seeks out Chris McNeil, the only person alive who's witnessed anything like it before. So Chris McNeil is from the original one. That's Ellen Burstyn. She's playing Chris McNeil. The reboot, or the bringing her back, because this is further down the line, is, I think, so great. And it's so great that she's still with us. Because it gives us some cohesion from the first scary version to this. Now, there were other versions and there's been other stuff around this that just fell short for me. And so the trailer, which is all I've seen right now, and listening to an interview with Ellen creeped me out when she says, I know you or, you know, when this moment, when that particular, when Pazuzu, demon and her meet again and you get this tie in where it's like, mother, it's creepy. So, Amy, for me, when The Exorcist first came out, it scared the living hell out of me. I was freaked out by it. There was something extra about this film and I think it still stands up. I couldn't sleep. There was something about this. And then when they remastered it and added in some of the scenes that they had been cut out originally with Reagan walking upside down, which is now a normal thing with demon type movies and stuff. But you've got to think this is the 70s. It was really groundbreaking. All this stuff was pretty groundbreaking in the 70s. And there is something about this idea of demon or devil possession that touches us on a primordial level. And I think that the way the film even opens up is just something deep in the gut knows that there's something possible here, that these old gods or old demons still lurk and can find a way in like a parasite. And if they do, is all lost. The terrifying scenes in that film were just so well played. I know that some of it may look a little hokey to modern audiences that are used to being deep in the simulacrum like we are now, where everything is basically digital reality. We weren't that way in the 70s. There was an analog. This all had to be created in another way, and it was harder. And so these effects 
had to rely on also our ideas internally and culturally of this dynamic. No matter where you look throughout all the religions, there's an idea of demonic possession. There are practices to get them out of you. There are remedies, just like cleansing yourself of any parasite, to remove them and keep them out. There are strategies to protect and ward your private spaces, your house, your apartment, whatever, your car, to keep these disincarnate spirits, devils, demons, aliens, whatever, out of you. And that's why I think this particular storyline hits so hard. And then when you add in the youth, so we have a little girl here, right? There's something extra about the youth. And if we look around, it is in our stories of the modern world. When children are being harmed, it affects us deeply as a culture, as a people, as parents, as brothers and sisters, and um, anything in between, as people connected to other people. The idea of innocence being fed upon by something unclean, because innocence is a state of being unsullied, and it is one of the precious things in this reality. And so the fact that there are predators out there that feed upon innocence is deeply moving. And you can start wars this way. You can get whole movements of people up in arms by even creating stories around a hurt child or hurt children. And this does absolutely happen. It really happens, but there's also staged events that happen around this. There was one very recently um, where it was a, a CGI image that was, or an AI image of like a puppy that was turned into a very distasteful image of like a charred baby. And it was fake, but it was being wielded as propaganda and obviously like propagated by search engines and things like that but so it's happening right now exactly what you're talking about i just i'm sure people know this but to just give you a this week example it's so prevalent right it's used against us because most people that are out here that are real humans right we love and protect our youth we value our youth and we understand that they're the future generation. And so it's easy to rally with that, it, just like it is with the elderly. But I will say this, it seems like there's a more of a campaign to treat the elderly as the bad guy. That's a different narrative. This movie's in the theaters now. 
it looks like it's going to deliver. I have one last thing I wanted to add because it's I find it to be very profound about this particular character, Reagan, whose name means king, queen or sovereign. And I think this movie was filmed in like 74 or something like that. So that would have made her born in like 64. But she's kind of a product, a child of a new generation of sovereignty where there was not going to they did end up having or they were having the Vietnam War. But there was sort of a promise of the youth at that time, I'd say, between the 70s and the 80s, the bridge into the technology, where I think they really did a, an excellent number on naming her Reagan and the way that it sort of expressed through the zeitgeist and what it meant for children of that era and watching them grow up and, uh, yeah, and seeing a pure child get uh, interacting with an i an iPad for the first time, or myself, I was on the internet at like ten. You know what I mean? So imagine being thrust from a small town of just like me and my friends into like an AOL chat room where I'm talking with people from New York. <laughs> I'm just saying, if we're talking about interloping forces, I've really left myself open by getting onto the World Wide Web. Yes, six six the www. If you really want to get down and freaky with it, you know. Yes. And we're going to get into that digital aspect before we head into a little bit of pop culture, because we're going to get into a couple of these other films that are coming out. There's the psychological aspect. So the Pope warns Vatican staff, an elegant demon lurks among them. This is newish, but it's not new. I can't recall, Amy, but I think that it has been in the mix with us in the past. And that is something to consider. And he really breaks down the idea that old days, a demon was crass and hardcore and vulgar and nasty. But now he's saying they're coming in a different form. And the word is literally elegant demon. And he uses the word lurks. And this is at the Vatican. So we need to look at that seriously and consider what does that actually mean? What comes to mind is an episode of Penny Dreadful, which was on Showtime about 10 years ago. And it's when Lucifer appears to her and he's, she starts uh, talking with him and he quotes Keats. And it's the most beautiful elegant eloquent poetry you've ever heard in a nice English man's accent. And I thought to myself when I saw that, Ah, I get it. Like he it's uh it's beautiful, it's elegant, but he's telling you things that you shouldn't necessarily know and you don't necessarily know you shouldn't know them in a religious context until it's too late. And he's delivering it to you smoothly with sugar and that is exactly what came to mind when you mentioned that. Yes, indeed. And you know, the Church of Satan and Anton LaVey's always said the devil's a gentleman just to make sure that people get this concept that sometimes it's not what you think it is. And oftentimes it's definitely not what you think it is. When we think about the ones that are causing harm and doing quote unquote evil things, nasty things, it's usually not your goth kid down the street. It's usually someone in some sharp clothing and a charismatic way about them with a nice smile so there's this whole psychological aspect and i'm going to just start here with this but i want to get to a point of relevance with it so 
And Psychology Today posted on May 25th of this year, this went up, a differential diagnosis of demonic possession, psychological explanations for an enduring phenomena that may be on the rise. And then the key points to this are nearly half the population believes in possession with some evidence that purported cases are on the rise. A differential diagnosis of possession reveals several possibilities beyond real versus delusional. And identifying the most likely cause of possession experiences is the key to getting the right help. The idea that humans can be possessed by the devil, demons, or spirits has been an enduring cultural meme for millennia, if not since the dawn of civilization. Although possession beliefs have been in a relative decline over the past century, coincidence with the decline in religious belief, polls from the past decade tell us that about 40 to 50 percent of the population still believes in demonic possession. And there is some evidence that cases of purported possessions have been on the rise in recent years. Now, the actual exorcist department through the catholic church it had like 12 or so it's like up to 80 practitioners of this or something it they have come out and declared that there is more possession on the rise and that this is now a phenomena that this has been something to pay attention to and there's a lot of people out there talking about this, Amy. One person that has been definitely heavily in the conversation is Jerry Marzinski. And you can find him at jerrymarzinski.com. The thing about Jerry is you'll have to just go and check him out. But he's got just these credentials that are killer. And he worked with schizophrenic people and in the psychological field. And here's where I want to lay this bone is that psychology has worked hand in hand with social engineering to corrupt our world. And I know that's going to burn a lot of arses out there, but I have been a big believer in that idea for a long time since I got deep into Jungian analysis and reading the full library of Jung's. And I don't like the rest of the psychological field by and large, and I'm psychology heavy. So there's this group on Rumble, the presence of other worlds in schizophrenia and they dive deep into this kind of stuff so jerry marzinski's work is very interesting amy because they're saying what i knew all along instinctually in my gut once i started diving into psychology in such a heavy way this was such a big part of my life my early life and psychology works hand in hand with other agencies and mostly with pharmaceutical agencies. And just like they're making pedophilia, they're normalizing it and selling drugs, right? And everyone's got a psychological condition and all these titles. 
it's all bullshit and it was all made up and the receipts are there. And so Jerry Marzinski's work with schizophrenia and schizophrenics in the baddest of the bad, you know, trenches out there did a lot of deep diving that changed his ideas on what schizophrenia is. And some of it is very, very intriguing. These people are talking to real things out there. It's not just in their head. It's the meds make it worse. The meds are part of the money trap here. And then it is postulated that some of these things that are talking to these people are in fact non-human entities. These people are having coherent conversations and I could go deeper into it. That would actually be a whole episode, but I just want to throw that out there. That's the psychological field out there is working against the people. And especially when we start talking about psychosis, because a lot of times when we're talking about possession, they want to break down this idea that it, it, the Vatican, especially discerning if this is a real possession, demonic possession, or if this is a psychological disorder. And that has been a long time standard for over a hundred years. And so you now have to relearn what you thought you knew. And I'm just going to leave that bullet there because it's a dangerous one and it's in the show notes. But let's look at something very provocative here. And I think as far as pop culture, you don't get more pop culture than Our Lady Doja Cat. And I want to look at Miss Doja Girl. Doja always delivers, and she has been through quite a transition since we've been talking about her. This new Doja Cat, which I find extremely fascinating, Amy, is a new vibration. Now, she's getting all these tattoos. She's really working what it is to morph, and she's really serving up a lot of demon energy and vibes she's very much saying fuck you to people and a lot of her core fans and she's gone into a whole different personality shift one could say that doja is possessed but by what whatever it is it's artful and it's well done the team around doja even if it's just her but we know there's a team is really tailoring this to a certain narrative. So, Amy, let's talk about Doja. Let's see. Doja Cat is kind of, in my opinion, like the next level of, okay, this is going to sound insane. She's the next level of kind of what Katy Perry was to camp and what she gave us with like 2013 era, like Illuminati mind control uh, pop sensation. Like she gave us a she served, if you will, everything that we had been reading about online and she gave it to us on a platter and we all got to watch it and wonder if it was real or if she's playing into it. And then, of course, we have a few years ago with the eye thing where her eye kind of went doll eye and uh, we were all wondering, is this a publicity thing or is this having to do with the juice or what is what is going on? And so now uh, 
just to kind of lay down the scenario of, or the, the scene of how I see Katy Perry and Doja Cat relating, Doja Cat really cut her teeth on the internet in the beginning. She was really camp and, in fact, uh, really understood her audience. It's always been like kind of a interactive uh, affair with her, actually. She's really good at addressing an audience via a live stream and interacting with them. And as she was gaining fame, more and more people started listening to her, obviously. And the more people, uh, as your audience grows, the more people that are on you, obviously the thing that they think you are is going to conflict perhaps with what you actually are. They're going to start seeing things that perhaps aren't there and projecting them upon the, the star. So Doja Cat, I think, got sick of that shit, and uh, she had to get some vocal surgery, and that's that led into a cancellation of a tour with The Weeknd, where she was going to be an opener, and she makes a mention of that in one of her three songs that's on her new album, about how that was a move to not be an opener, but to be a headliner, and how, um, basically, she has... She doesn't mind shaking off a certain section of her fans if she can be real. And so as she was kind of escalating into uh, out of Coachella 2019, I think she might have been one of the first acts we talked about on the show or 2020 something. Um, she was kind of really a divine feminine character, like a beautiful woman was like a really famous song of hers really evoked a lot of feminine energy, but also always in this kind of like campy sort of, I, you're, I know you're watching, like I keep it juicy, a song completely about her butt, you know, like it, it, there's so many levels to Doja, but she's always rapped and she's always been a pop star and she's always been a popper. And um, so she started, she, she lost the, she decided not to go on tour with The weekend, and that's when she decided to shave her head and people were, or or perhaps, uh, I don't even want to say that, her head got shaved and people were inferring that that might be an Illuminati uh, humiliation ritual and other people are inferring other things. And she says she's just doing it because it feels better. And then all of a sudden she's shaving her eyebrows on a live and people are, oh, this is for sure an Illuminati humiliation ritual. And everyone's just saying stuff about her. And so at this point, she goes kind of radio silent. Then we see her at this Caparelli show, and uh, that was, I think, earlier this year, and she is dressed in all red, like head to toe, with like 30,000 uh, crystals on her, and it's such an interesting look because her head is bald, there's no hair, and she has a look that is everyone is just saying she's really, really, uh, you know, serving the devil, basically. And when I say serving the devil, I mean serving in the way that one serves uh, in a fashionable way. But I realize that that is how we, you know, she is serving in both senses of the word, um, according to the, the zeitgeist. So Doja Cat has really been, she's had this uh, air about her from the public consciousness, from kind of the, the exoteric circles, let's say, that she's a demon, that she's trying hard to be a demon. And if you listen to her lyrics, it's such an interesting, intentional move, like you said, on her team's part, but also her part, to um, kind of move her from being the, uh, the divine feminine to the dark feminine, which I think they've done seamlessly. And it's... Uh, it's so important to understand in the context of all this work and her album that just came out, Scarlet, that she had a great performance on the VMAs in September. And it was the three songs that she has out. And she did it in such a different way. She came out with a long blonde wig on and she was kind of in like a Calistia Flockhart sort of Ally McBeal era, like mini skirt and, and giving us like all sorts of like business women, like corporate 
New York sort of and streets of New York, uh, Midtown or whatever. And she is uh, not really giving us the regular thing, except for behind her. She's got all these red painted um, Lilith sort of demon figures that are kind of dancing in synchrony behind her. And what she's really singing about this whole time is like now that she's gotten her like her her addictions under control, how do her demons look now that she's got a lot of money now that she's risen to power and fame? Like can you, now her demons are coming out because they're they're allowed to sort of now that people have elevated her to this status. And it really did remind me of the Kanye West song in the same vibe, because I don't know, about 10 years ago, there's a there's like a video that comes out of him after getting really drunk and it's him just like walking around the city by himself, talking to himself. And it's like claimed he's being possessed. And it reminds me of Kanye West saying, wait till I get my money. Right. Basically meaning that when I get my shit together, you are going to see me. And what does that mean? Me uncovered me without the pretenses of being polite. Cause I don't have to me without the social, social niceties, me without uh, having to adhere to certain laws, perhaps. Like, you know, there's just certain, there's a confidence, a, a, a spiritual sort of swagger that these people are now rocking. And, uh, you know, I used to go back and forth on whether or not these artists would bring into the conversation the devil. Like, would they do it on purpose? Are they trying to glorify? And I think it's really funny because on some level there, I think she's using it artistically and metaphorically and doing a really good job. And if we really look into the corporate kind of performance she gave on the VMAs, we can really see what she's saying, which is like, what is the devil? What is to be possessed? And it's these people uh, she's coming with serving, I mean, essentially white corporate woman, and she's giving all sorts of, uh, high power, you know, and I think it's sort of letting us know that, like, maybe she's not the evil one, or at least perspective shift, like, consider there's another perspective of evil out there, and I thought that was done freaking brilliantly, and, uh, and, it, and at some level, um, there is no way to talk about the devil without glorifying him, but I will say that what got me into understanding, I guess, and then knowing the reality of God was to first really, you know, I was always agnostic, but to really understand the level of evil in the world. Uh, if you're a, a, a common sense thinker, you got to be like, oh, well, if there's this, you know, maybe there's also that. And so all, I mean, I'm, I'm gold-pilled till I die, but uh, I can, I see this as a lot of negativity comes out of it. People get up in arms about her being satanic and saying all sorts of stuff and we can go into that for another, you know, 10 shows. But really at the end of the day, um, I think people need to not get so hung up on what the pop culture definitions of these words are and really kind of look within themselves. And might I add my final thoughts, if you find you can't look within yourself for these sorts of things, um, I would just suggest to uh, maybe do like an entity clearing or something because the thing that's keeping you from yourself is, you know, I'm not going to say it's a possession, but there's a block there. And this is what we're, this is what I'm talking about anyways, when it comes down to possession is that there's a, there's things that are, you know, keeping you from your best things. And if they're your demons, are you possessed by them necessarily? Uh, in her song demons, maybe she's just talking about how she used to smoke and nicotine is a, a very addictive drug. And uh, perhaps our, uh, 
there's all sorts of things that are addictive out there. And I know that when I've been interested in substances, I don't always feel like I'm running myself. So maybe once I've shook my addiction, my demons are running loose. There's all sorts of ways that this could be looked at, which honestly, um, it's, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, a little antiquated to look at this solely through the lens of the church. Not to say that even 10 years ago that was, but like nowadays, I think that we have such a huge broad perspective of what things are and there's every holy text available to us online and i just uh there's more to this conversation than good and evil uh white and black binary so on yes indeed and a lot of people in in the entertainment industry have said you know there's too much to tag here but i mean even when uh the late heath ledger was preparing for the Joker role, he said something to the effect of, um, let's see, Heath used to reach another state of consciousness with drugs to leave his body and allow an entity to come in. It was shown to him as a way to harness energy. And this could be looked at in different ways. Some people may consider that the muse, and this is why this territory becomes unclear, becomes very gray. And this could be said of what Doja is doing as well. The thing with Doja is she's going to classical images. So the tattoos she's putting on her body are actual images from, I think, the 1400s. I cannot recall, and this is shame on me, but I'm sure it's in the show notes. Uh, the artist, uh, it's in one of the old books, one of the old uh, artists out there that was drawing images of malformities in humans, but they look very demonic. They look very chimeric. They look like, in a way, they could be part of, say, Hieronymus Bosch's uh, work as well. And I found the thing about the Vatican. So demand is rising. The United States is home to about 50 stable exorcists, those who have been designated by bishops to combat demonic activity on a semi-regular basis, up from just 12 a decade ago, according to the Reverend Vincent Lampert an Indianapolis-based priest exorcist who is active in the International Association of Exorcists. So this is a big deal. Jumping back to Doja Cat, it's Fortunio Lissetti, and he was a philosopher from the 1600s. And Doja's been really bringing that kind of imagery back, but also with in that video where she's all black and she's presenting a particular type of demon, you can look back to the Victorian period. You can look back to a little bit earlier, but the high Victorian period really produced images of demons at that time is completely black, like charcoal black, not like black. Uh, this is like a black, black, like shadow black. And they were sometimes 
human-esque and sometimes they were a chimeric blend and she's presenting one of those so if you're familiar with those images as i am i immediately knew what she was going for there and of course she was going with the night terrors too and in some of those old paintings and illustrations you see them around death and dying and you see them around people sleeping and sleep paralysis and she presents all that in the video. These tattoos are very provocative, but I want to say I personally love the tattoo art on her. And I think it's beautiful. And I think it's well done the way she's doing it. It's her taste. It's her body. And it's her journey. And so this is the thing. We're observing pop culture, which is a reflection of all of our internal stuff churning and pushing out into the collective. Inside of each one of us, there is a Doja Cat because she's out there in the collective, just the way it works. And so this idea of being possessed by a spirit becomes complex when we start to break it down, doesn't it? it? It starts to look different when we think of it as the muse as opposed to a demon or as the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost as opposed to Lucifer or Satan or Pazuzu. As we learned from the definition and from definitions, of what that is. There's an idea that angels can be turned into demons. The fallen become demons. Just like in Tolkien's universe where elves are morphed into the orcs. There's a transfiguration that goes on here. It brings in a connotation of a spiritual happening one way or the other. And so there's this article in our show notes, and it's an exorcist on bringing a child to an abelaro. Bringing children to abelaro or traditional healers or cult practitioners and not a priest will have dire repercussions on the child or person too. And here's the quote, if brought to traditional healers or cult practitioners instead of priests, this can often lead to possession, the most extreme form of spiritual attack, wherein demons take complete control of a person's body, not the soul, he said. And the person who has been possessed will have no recollection of what occurred while they were under the influence of demons. And this is from Sequoia, uh, Friar Sequoia. In, case of, in cases of mass possession, such as in schools, the priest describes how an exorcist could handle this. And it goes on and on about how they're doing this. They're, they're doing whole towns. They're exercising whole towns and, and whole schools. And this brings in a different idea and a different stance on what this is. So, you know, he's targeting out 
traditional healers here. And I think that this is where it gets very difficult because we've got one idea of what a possession is up against another. A traditional healer has a different view of a demonic possession than, say, a Catholic does. And they will go about different practices to deal with it. So perhaps the person is having maladies, which can be attributed to possession. But what if they're having seizures? What if something they're eating is causing this strangeness to go on and you go to a natural healer and they get your gut healed or they get you cleansed of of parasites, of worms, these conditions can go away. And so there's nuance here and it's hard to stay in one lane when we're thinking about this because it is context. It's easy to think about all this from just the Christian or Abrahamic angle. And I was looking at a Navajo elder, Wally Brown. He was talking about skinwalkers. And so skinwalkers, demons, and the evil one. And he had a breakdown on that. But he said something like this, so I paraphrase it, but he was talking about technology that's being used on people now. And he was talking about observing and watching how technology is affecting people these days. So he said, a lot of technology is being used to control what people think, do, say, everything. The great power, observe, watch, and learn. When you learn it, then you understand it. Then you learn how to avoid it. I think that was such a powerful message from a Navajo elder. And they have a different perspective on what this is. But yet there is a, a thread of continuity here. And this is one of the things that we're going to jump into now, Amy D, is when we're looking at people on fentanyl, when we're looking at people heavy on some sort of substance, and we could easily talk about SSRIs and Klonopin, because one of the symptoms in traditional possessions is missing time. The people don't know where they went, what happened, what I did what, you know? And so... We can see this. I mean, Stevie Nicks said Kalanapin was the worst thing that ever happened to her. It stole a decade of her life. It was worse than the drug she was trying to get off of, which was cocaine. And Kalanapin was prescribed to her by her doctor. And it's this kind of thing that we're talking about. Remember, the pharmaceutical companies are in bed with the psychological crowd, with psychology, And they're working together. And you could conceptually say they are controlling our lives. They are possessing us by calling natural things a disorder and then giving us drugs. And then there are other drugs that become street drugs. So fentanyl 
had a husbandry use for animals and and just like other things. So what we see now is this zombie culture of people in fentanyl and they look zombie-like, they look demon-possessed. So Amy, I know you dug into some of this. What what are your thoughts on all this? I have so many thoughts on this. Um, first, I think it's really important on my perspective for the people to understand that I am kind of more aligned with the native perspective. And I see that anything that's been placed upon the native perspective, and I mean that like internationally, the native perspective, I see it as sort of, um, and this is going to be a a tough word, everyone, kind of a colonization, um, sort of an alien takeover, an alien abduction, if you will. And I, so, and, and I did not always see it that way, but as I've done this show with you over the last few years and everything that we've gone through kind of collectively, I've kind of come to understand exactly what people mean, though, when they say, it's been colonized in that it was a land and a system, um, or let's say even going back to the Bible, um, there was a, a some books that predated the Bible and they got erased and the Bible got colonized and are erased and taken over and controlled by a certain group of people. I don't, I'm not even going to speak to that, but um, these people uh, erased certain characters from the Bible and erased certain perspectives and basically kind of started it then. And so if I apply that system of takeover to basically every aspect of my life, basically also understanding that psychology has now replaced religion in so many ways, um, I definitely see what you're saying. And there's no way around it. Um, As someone who was I I graduated from a college with a psychology degree, and there were a a class I took, psychopharmacology, one of my first classes as a as a student. I asked my professor, like, well, how are how are we supposed to like figure out how they measure, you know, um, uh, neurotransmitters, like uh, the things that SSRIs control, and uh, and the way that the the neurotransmitters, the dopamine and the serotonin, how are they reuptaking? And she goes, "Oh, that's silly. We can't test for that. We're just assuming." And so um, at that point in time, I realized that even though I continued with the degree, that this was perhaps not the field for me, though very interesting. And um, I realized just sort of how much of a hold they have over us without having any sort of actual evidence. It's not like a hard science. And then I started thinking about how, well, you know, we don't really have a hard understanding with the church, a hard uh, 3D material understanding of church spirituality and possession for, you know, good reason, because it's sort of ethereal and spiritual in nature. But we also, um, and they and they would like us to think that we have evolved into the wonderfully uh, smart, intelligent, heavenly land of psychiatry and, and medicine. And that's, it is great. It has its place. But in fact, these, these neurotransmitters are no more of a myth than, say, uh, the, the demons and angels. They're not, it's not based in any kind of reality. It's just kind of a theory. And that's become more exposed in the last few years. And I'm not saying that there's not something going on. Obviously, for thousands of years, people have been having responses to things that have been going on. And they have uh, they, they have these things that they interact with or the spirit and it, they're possessed. But I do find it most interesting that uh, now the only difference is, is that we we 
we ground it in that it's actual 3D knowledge and that it's something that is actually true and 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 it's, it's not this scientific or it's not this spiritual kind of etheric thing. This is hard and 3D. And in fact, it's not. It's just this kind of spiritual and guesstimate and in nature. Um, I don't mean spiritual in that like it's a good or bad. I just mean spiritual in that it's not real. Like it's not here 3D manifest. It's like in our minds, we understand what it does, but there's no actual hard evidence, which is what science is about, right? Like otherwise we're dealing with other topics. There's no hard science for that kind of stuff. And they know that it works somehow, but they don't know how. And um, honestly, let me just end it by saying this. United States is one of the only countries where they, I think it's the only country where they allow advertising um, for pharmaceuticals. And there's been a lot of theorizing that the reason um, United States citizens have such a high placebo effect when we interact with these things is because we are advertised to, because apparently we look at the TV as authority and on some low-key subconscious level, I'm not talking about us guys, I'm talking about everyone, you know, kind of the collective um, we're we're absorbing this and we're we're kind of buying the mind magic and we're able to sort of in a really cool way, like we're he- getting better and, and the placebo effect is much higher. Like we have a 33 percent, whereas other people have like 20 or 15. But that's also like <laughs> it sort of makes you wonder, like, what causes that and like why is it about medicine? And it's, you know, I'll leave it there. But there's a lot to chew on. There certainly is. and. You know, when we're when we're trying to dig down and look at these subjects, we have to consider all the angles. And this is certainly an angle or an angel. I want to look at this bit. Noelle Jeanette highlighted this. So I'm going to read it. The word exorcism derives from the Greek word for oath, exousia. As religious studies scholar James R. Lewis explains in his book, Satanism Today, an encyclopedia of religion, folklore, and popular culture, to exercise thus means something along the lines of placing the possessing spirit under oath, invoking a higher authority to compel the spirit rather than an actual casting out. This becomes clear when the demonic entity is commanded to leave the person, not by the authority of the priest, but instead, for example, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Vatican first issued guidelines on exorcism in 1614 and revised them in 1999, according to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Signs of demonic possession include superhuman strength, aversion to holy water, and the ability to speak in unknown languages, along with a handful of Vatican-sanctioned exorcists. There are hundreds of self-styled exorcists around the world. Now, this becomes interesting to me when we start looking at pharmaceuticals and we start looking at street drugs and thinking about this other layer of possession and casting out. So when one is under the influence of something and they're blacking out, we've seen this in lots of video clips through TikTok, but also way back, there's all kinds of stories of people on PCP 
angel dust that had superhuman strength. They could just carry on and on and on. It would take a ton of people to subdue them. Or they could think they were flying or all this other stuff. Is that actually the drug interacting with their physiology? What's going on in the brain? What's happening to override that person's sense of logic and spatial reality in the realm we're in now? And see, this moves deeper into what's been going on with some of this research into DMT, which is also, you know, you can go to a shaman, and I'm saying that loosely, um, and have these experiences in different places, but you can also administer forms of DMT yourself and also other hallucinogens. But in Silicon Valley, they're pushing the limits here. So there's an article in our notes. Silicon Valley's latest fascination in exploring DMT hyperspace. So think about this. They are now taking something that is really short-lived. DMT is a short-lived experience. And in fact, people talk about how they live lifetimes within that short period, which can be 30 seconds to 10 minutes, and they they come back and they can't believe it's been such a short period of time. So they are now altering it so that it could be a prolonged experience. This gave me the heebie-jeebies, Amy, because as someone who's had some bad trips and knowing, my left brain knowing that I had to ride it out, that it would end, <laughs> was of comfort, but also terrifying. So those were experiences where I'd get under something and just try and stay calm and write out a bad experience. But DMT is a whole different thing. And the world, the worlds within it are a whole different thing. There's a quote from this article, actually. But now an intravenous delivery system could allow people to spend more time in these bizarre zones retrieving data about their ontology and perhaps telling us more about our waking reality. See, the thing is with this is how does one actually control that? And it starts to bring in this idea of a dream within a dream. Uh, This is an altered natural substance that's being altered to create a prolonged experience in a hallucinatory state or in a different dimension where you are not really in your physical body. It begs the question of what could get in your physical body if there's a drug used to get you out and lose agency or jurisdiction over your vessel. And this could be at play. There's a lot of talk about people in comas that come back and, and talk about the loss of agency and jurisdiction and being awake but not being able to do anything. And so as we're looking into the technology of all this, Amy, this is technological. And the receipts are now in that our once we called the aura is, you know, it's a biofield, it's a body part. 
and it's recognized in the world of real science and there are real patents out there that show and talk about how it's been usurped from us our generation and our parents as well because it's like gas it's like natural gas where you can't smell it you can't see it so therefore you don't know it but it's actually a body part they've made it part of a w band through the ieee 802.16.5 i believe and all the receipts are out there there's um some wonderful PDFs from a woman named Sabrina Wallace that are worth having and looking at because the receipts are there. This is not woo-woo. You can be possessed by electronic energy. Now, we know that this is at play from stories like Royal Rife and Tesla and that whole lot. We know with the personal studies that Carl Jung was doing that there was a lot more going on here, and he's the only one I consider worthy of any kind of psychological field, but he was just in his own league, and he was working on this stuff privately, as we saw in his red book and then his black book journals. And so this technology where you can be remote-controlled and are by actual people out there it's a job so when we're talking 5g which is a weapon we're talking basics there we're talking og when we're starting to get into six seven eight g when we're starting to talk about the internet of everything including your own flesh including your biofield which has been stripped from you your thoughts your actions there are stories out there that i've covered that show people that all of a sudden snap and do crazy things there's a 12 year old girl that snapped and in the night just stabbed her brother and then when she 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 didn't even know what happened and she was not a threat she loved her brother it was totally one of these remote controlled situations that is patented that has technology that's dealing with your biofield and biologics we even have when the uh the ufo whistleblower claims us has non-human biologics when we are looking at that situation that went down a couple months ago that intelligence briefing to the sitting congress um i think people didn't understand clearly what he was saying because the word biologics was used so he did say non-human he did say they're a threat etc but biologics now biologics is very interesting because That could be a virus. That could be a change in your DNA or your RNA through, say, a jab, right, a vaccination. This shifts you up. Graphene oxide is a major player in this. Nano anything is not the look if you are trying to hold agency over your ship. 
And so to think about possession under this template, electronic template, electrical control template, Li-Fi, Wi-Fi, etc., is a different thing. They ride on the electrical waves. We are swimming in a sea of dirty electricity along with flicker rates and everything else. And people are going crazy. And we now know that crazy isn't actually crazy. A group of people got together and made all those terms up. Look it up. It's real. You know, sadly, people like you and I, Amy, we came through some heavy psychology. You got a full degree in it. And when you learn and you when you finally learn and you see the truth that this stuff is made up by people in bed with other people to control what's going on in our world, to possess us collectively, it looks nefarious and it doesn't need to be the devil you know from the Bible. It doesn't need to be Lucifer. Or is it? Or is this the beast system that's possessing us? But it can be some nerd that has a job that deals with biologics, that deals with the W ban and gets in and is messing with people. To call it Targeted individuals or Havana syndrome is OG now. It's OG. And this is next level. And then we have things like the introduction of reality within reality. So if we're talking about DMT, what would that take? That starts to look very Arkham. Could that be sprayed over a city? And then you just have a mass situation of out of controlled realities i mean we could ask these questions the what ifs all day but at some point we do need to understand i think what is our body what is our soul what is our spirit do you really have control when you're craving that sweet whatever it is or is that candida in your system is that possession or is the voice in your head that you think is your voice, is it really yours? Because the OG technology of voice to skull is so last season. So we're talking dream hacking, we're talking reality hacking, we're talking virtual realities and augmented realities. So at some point, we have to pull back and say, what am I? Where am I? Who am I? And start to really ponder this. There's a really great trailer out there, Amy, of Alice in Wonderland. And it's all AI done. It's very, very good. I hope it becomes a movie. Because nothing was ever better than or more situated towards an AI reality than the story of Alice in Wonderland. Her father has put her into a headset, an altered state of reality, and we get the story from Lewis Carroll from there. 
and he's kept her there. Just like this idea of prolonged DMT experiences, just like going into the metaverse and virtual reality. At some point, where have you made too many turns in the maze and you can't get out of it? Where is reality and where is the simulation? And if you are lost in some sort of a maze, a maze of depression, a maze of being manic, a maze of love bombs, where's your body and what's in control of your body? Because the you that you experience, the I voice, the I am that I am within, is different than your vessel. You are not your vessel. And I'm wondering how deep this rabbit hole goes, Amy. So as we're getting close to being where we have more questions than when we started and trying to understand really what is possession, do you have thoughts on this? Do you want to add more to this conversation? What say you, Amy D? Girl, in the words of Jerry Springer, my final thoughts on the possession in this particular episode, because um, if there's anything I know about doing a show with you is that it will expand my thoughts after recording even. But the word possession had me thinking of what does that mean? You have possessions, you own things, self-possessed. And then I thought about what happens if you have the opposite of that. And then I thought, oh, you will own nothing, huh? That's really funny. I've heard that before. And I thought that's really funny because um, that would be a dispossessed person, right? Someone who owns nothing. That's very uh, a hearkening of the, the World Economic Forum, you know, propaganda that came out around 2020. And then also I thought about um, all the videos I've been posting to the gold pill lately about repossession and the debt system. And I just thought that possession is... Um, Although these really have nothing to do spiritually, right? It's There is so much spiritually. I think that's how major the spiritual possession has become. Um, is that it's actually kind of like the, the all that all that is, was, and ever will be kind of vibe of like, there's the, there's the, you will own nothing. And that's apparently to be aspirational. There's the being possessed, which has multiple connotations at this point, And then the repossession, uh, I mean, I think we all understand like the state of the, the world and the country right now. And I just, uh, I think there's never been a more relevant topic. And once again, Nish, um, right on time, but truly a month ahead because we've been planning this for a while, but this is an insanely on topic on time, uh, t- you know, uh, topic. And I am so excited that we are going to be sharing this because <laughs> there's just so much here. And I'm sure many people will just want to feast and go look into their own, you know, perspectives and broaden their own horizons. And I'm excited that we are a part of that for other people. Yeah, of course. We're just here to spark questions. You know, think about synthetic biology. Think about tissue, the wireless synthetic engineering through tissue. And I want to leave everyone with this saying, and it's from the Pope's Exorcist movie that Russell Crowe did, and it is that was, you know, based on a real person, a real, a real priest, a real exorcist, and in his bag, along with holy water and the special 
book of incantations and prayers and petitions and crucifixes and all that, one of the things he said is this, Exorciso Dio Immudissimus Spiritus. I exercise, O oh God, this unclean spirit. And that becomes kind of a big idea here. Unclean, solid. What are your actions? What are you doing? What brings you love and joy? What connects you to others? I wonder if we were able to actually start asking ourselves deeper, scarier questions, harder questions, where that would get us collectively, like, do you remember your Rachel moment from Blade Runner, Philip K. Dick? Are we spirits in the machine? Are we what we think we are? We are spirits in a biological suit that is technically nothing without us. It is a vessel. And so be weary, beware. You know, the Bible says when you cast one out, seven more come back in. So I think it's time to start taking stock. The world around us demands this. We are in unstable territory. And if one looks around, it certainly looks like a hellscape. Everyone's fighting everyone. Zombies are walking around, not in the way you see them in Hollywood, unless we talk about Shaun of the Dead, that brilliant film. But fentanyl zombies, drugged out zombies, people who've checked out, they're everywhere. The possessed are everywhere. That person that's just so angry all the time, you know, the road rage. It seems dangerous. It seems uncanny. It seems a bit like Dante's Inferno now. And so we just want to throw a little bit of love out there with some glitter and glam and get you all to think about the little things sometimes, not just the big things. And Definitely, always find the beauty, find the love, find the leisure if you can, and never let the laughs go. You know, they always say, laughter dispels, dispels. Laughter cuts the negative energy like a knife in butter. And so with that, I want to thank you for being here with Amy D and I on this edition of Prima Donnas of the Gutter Possessed